Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. It is a joy to see the move of God all over the world. And church, you are being a part of the move of God in Peru from right here in Kansas City, Missouri, and even around our country without even leaving here, we're impacting there. So two and a half years ago, we planted a church. We partnered with a Peruvian pastor and a Compassion Center. Now, when I say Compassion Center, think of Education Center. Compassion International has become one of the most important strategic partners we have when it comes to a global vision for the Great Commission, taking the gospel to all nations. And so what we're doing is sponsoring a 1,000 children in that one area. For $38 a month, you're lifting a child and their family out of poverty. We're not just providing for them physically with food and groceries and medical on a monthly basis, but think about this. In addition to that, they're getting over 400 hours of biblical discipleship. They're being introduced to Jesus, and they're growing in their walk and their faith as a part of this local church, and that's what's so exciting about what Compassion has helped us do. Compassion International committed to working in and through the local church, and that's what's so exciting to me about this. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this again. In another area of that same region, we're planting another church, building another Compassion Center, and today we're going to sponsor another 500 children by the end of this day, and I'm so excited about that opportunity. Listen, I've heard it said that the really great men were great because they never knew they were great. And that's a mark of greatness in the eyes of God. That's how Jesus described John, for example, when he said the greatest man ever born among women. He said in John 3.30, I must decrease so that he may increase. And today we have a chance to be among what I consider a truly great man. He'd never call himself great, but he really, really is. Wes Stafford has been with Compassion International for 45 years. At that time, there were 25,000 children sponsored worldwide. In 1993, Wes became the president and CEO of Compassion International, and under his leadership, 25,000 has become 2.2 million. Remarkable accomplishment (laughs) under Wes's leadership. But what really makes him great is not what he has done, but rather who he is. And I really, really am so thrilled to get to invite him to the platform today of Abundant Life. Would you give Wes Stafford your biggest, biggest welcome ever? Thank you, Wes. Thank you. Don't you love that guy? You are so blessed to have a shepherd like that over you. And what a remarkable name of a church, Abundant Life. 
I'm not, I don't know who came up with that name, but I think that every church should be called Abundant Life. And it, just this morning, I can feel that abundant life. What a sweet spirit in this place. I feel like really all I need to do is close us in prayer. We have done what we came here to do. And I'm glad to actually get to see you uh, in all of these seats. Uh, all I knew about you was what your pastor told me as we were fishing uh, last summer. And uh, I anticipated that everybody in here was going to be 10 feet tall, <laughs> able to leap buildings in a single bound. I don't know, we were fishing. I should have known that things are exaggerated when you're fishing. But here you are, and I get a chance to finally see you face to face. And yeah, I had the great joy of a full day in a little boat fishing with your precious pastor. Unhurried, time for conversations, time to stop and pray. I fell in love with this big old guy. His heart, his vision, his courage, and uh, you're blessed. You're very blessed to, uh, to have him. Our hearts ache for him today at the loss of his father earlier this week. How many of you have ever lost your father? Yeah. Nobody's old enough to lose their father and have it not matter. And I'm watching him and praying for him this remarkable day. And I know about your great love for children in this place. Uh, I know about that little center you have out there. There's a thousand of you who are doing the extraordinary thing of reaching out across the world and sponsoring a child. How many of you are here this morning already? You're, you say, uh, yep, I'm one of those guys. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you don't know it yet, and you will know it when you walk into the kingdom, uh, but that is about as close to the heart of God as you can get and as close to the priorities of the kingdom as you can get. And I'm honored to get to be here uh, among you. Um, and I know from walking around your building and seeing what the efforts you have put in to making children welcome in this place that you really care about your own children. Any child who is a part of abundant life is a blessed child. And so I feel, I feel right at home today. Get to be with people who, uh, who think the way I think. Because normally when I'm out on the road speaking, I'm talking to theologians and missiologists and seminary professors. And I, and I can tell when, as I start, when they discover that we're going to talk about children, I can see from their body language, they're like, really? What don't I know about children? Tell me something. And so I have to use statistics and scripture and strategy to convince them that children have an important place in the kingdom of God. But this feels like vacation to me. I know your hearts for children already. I don't need to convince you of anything. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to try to encourage you in what I know you are already doing. And I want to arm you for the battle because not everybody understands the strategic importance in the kingdom of God that you do. So the message this morning is something I call the least of these matter most. And all through history, right from the very beginning, the church has behaved with its priorities and with its budget and with its strategies as if Jesus in Matthew 25, this great teacher, inadvertently skipped the word when he said, whatever you have done for one of the least of these, 
you've done it unto me. We've behaved as if what he meant to say, whatever you've done for one of the least important of these, you've done for me. But he didn't. He didn't make a mistake. He meant that every time the least of these that he's speaking of are the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable. He was surely talking that day about the smallest among them, about the weakest among them, about those least able to speak for themselves, least able to protect themselves, least able to care for themselves. He was saying those least of those are those who can't thank you. They can't reward you. They can't honor you. And he says mysteriously and wonderfully in that moment, that was me that you did that for. Teacher, that little boy that you just won't give up on, Jesus would say, that's me. Officer, that little girl that you protected, Jesus would say, that was me. Those tears you brushed from that little cheek, those were my tears, says your Lord. And I felt that much-needed hug myself. And that child you sponsored in the jungles of Peru, yeah, that was me. And that Matthew 25, 40 judgment day is in fact coming. And it's just one trumpet blast away from now when the dark glass will be removed and the, ta- the veil will be pushed apart and we will all see the kingdom and we will all understand the heart of God. And there will be so many surprises then. going to be surprising who was important and who really wasn't and what was important and what really wasn't. And then at that day, every one of us will understand. And in the kingdom of God, this upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the weak are strong and the poor are rich, we will understand that the little were big all this time. And that those of you who reached out and blessed a child blessed the very heart of your Lord. So let's start with a little test this morning Make sure that we're all on the same page. It could be that we are all so united in our understanding about the importance of children that I'll just be wasting your time. We'll just dismiss and go have coffee, okay? So let me give you just a little test. You don't need a piece of paper or a pencil, just your imagination. So close your eyes and visualize this. The story is told of D.L. Moody, the evangelist, who founded Moody Bible Institute, one of the schools I went to. And uh, he was a great evangelist. And the story is told that one night as he climbed into bed after an evangelistic service, his wife Emma rolled over and said, well, how did it go tonight, Dwight? And he said, well, Emma, pretty good. Two and a half converts. And Emma thought for a second, she said, that's a cute way to put it. How old was the child? And he said, no, 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 Emma, it was two children and one adult. The children have their whole lives in front of them. It's the adult who's half gone. I can tell by the chuckles around this auditorium that some of you pictured two grown-ups and a little child. So I got to do this. My work is cut out for me. No coffee for you. We will, we will go forward on this. Um, 
I have to admit that when I first heard that story, I had worked at Compassion for 10 years, and even I pictured two grown-ups and a child. I don't anymore. That's why I wrote Too Small to Ignore and uh, Just a Minute and why I fight so hard on behalf of children. D.L. Moody led a million people to Christ during his lifetime, and over half of them were little children. And on his deathbed, he said, if I had my life to live over again, I would dedicate it entirely in ministry to children. He was way out of step with the theologians and the missiologists of his day. And I'm here to tell you it's so sad, but he would still be out of step with the leaders within the kingdom of God. But this man understood the harvest. In my book, Too Small to Ignore, I call ministry to children the great omission of the great commission. And people sit back, whoa, that seems a little strong. Are you sure about that? And I'm like, yeah, I am. I got that impression when I went to evangelism conference a while back when I was early on in my presidency. It was a gathering of the most important evangelists across the world. And uh, they had two and a half days to share strategies and statistics about how we could reunite to bring this world to Christ. And as a young president of Compassion, I went there pat in hand, ready to take notes. What could we do? What could, how could we add to this important, important endeavor? And uh, these were the, 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 the true muckety-mucks of the kingdom. They were at the top uh, rung. Uh, they were each given 15 minutes and somebody in the front sat with a bell and a stopwatch, and at the 15-minute mark, it rang. And it didn't matter if you were Billy Graham, you got off the platform after 15 minutes. There was no time for jokes, no time for stories. We were looking for just the heart of the battle. So I sat there with my pen poised, ready to write down, what could, what could we learn? And I listened to the spe first speaker and realized I hadn't actually written anything. And I listened to the second speaker, and again, nothing. By the third speaker, I realized they're not really talking about children here. Maybe I came to the, came to the wrong place. And I was about to, in despair, give up and do what you used to when you were little children in church. I was going to just take and fill in the zeros in the, in the bulletin just to pass the time. I admit it, you did that. But then I thought, maybe, maybe a little more noble, why don't I just keep track of how many times I hear them say child or children? And so I began listening for that. And in two and a half days of the evangelists of the world talking strategy to bring in the harvest, I heard the word child or children only 12 times. And usually it was in passing, like every man, woman, and child. Yeah, I said, okay, that, I'd count that. They said child. And a woman got up and said, we've got to get the women of America to stop praying for their children and start praying for the world. And I'm like, okay, she said children. I've got to count that one too, but that's really off base. <laughs> My heart began to break. Speaker after speaker after speaker, there was nothing said, nothing mentioned, nothing written about children. It was mostly strategies. We did a great deal of talk about people, groups, uh, it was amazing to me, but after two and a half days, understanding people groups, I could have led a one-armed Muslim woman cab driver in Islamabad to Christ, but I learned nothing about leading a child to Christ. Children, the largest people group in the world, and the most receptive, the most strategic 
of all, and Moody understood that. And I looked ahead in the program, and I saw that there was a session at the end called Other Comments. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to bide my time, but I'm starting to burn inside here. And of course, like most conferences, uh, they ran out of time, even with the bell ringing, it didn't happen. And so they couldn't do that last session. And my heart just burned within me because I wanted to jump up and say, people, would you humor me for a moment here? Would you picture this sea of humanity, all nations gathered together before the Lord? Who are these people? What do they look like? Now, in your mental image, if every other person in that picture isn't a child, you don't even know what the harvest looks like because our world is now half children. And they are at the prime time to lead to Christ. Missiologists understand that 85% of us who give our lives to Christ do it while we are children between the ages of 4 and 14. Line up 10 Christians and ask, when did you make that decision? Eight of them will say, before I was 14 years old. Let me do a little missiological research this morning. How many of you would say, yep, that's when I did too. I gave my life to Christ between ages of 4 and 14. You see, it holds true here. I can tell you it holds true across the world. By the way, if you don't give your life to Christ by age 20, the likelihood that you will ever give your life to Christ is only a 6% probability. How many of you gave your life to Christ after age 20? Raise your hand. Yeah. Run out and buy a lottery ticket. You guys are winners. <laughs> you got right under the wire on that one. This is what breaks my heart was knowing that, that only 10% of most missionary efforts, as measured by their budget, is reaching children for Christ and discipling children. And it is a rare church that spends more than 15% of its budget on this. Abundant life, you are really an exception. But I can tell you this, we are not going to bring in the harvest unless there is a paradigm shift. We all need to think differently. So I ask myself, it's so obvious, how did we get so far away from this? How did we miss this truth? Could it be that there's just too few? I mean, minorities in society often get marginalized. Could it be there's too few of them? No, they're half of our world? Are they unimportant or maybe only half as important as we are? No, no, no. My five-foot wife can make quite a case why small has nothing to do with power and might. And I say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Could it be that it's all too complicated? We're unfamiliar with their plight. Let me do one more little bit of research. How many of you were ever a child? <laughs> yeah. You all deserve honorary doctorates. You spent 18 years in this very complicated field doing research. That, by the way, is 9,500,000 minutes you spent being nothing but a child. Everyone I ever met either is a child or was a child. We don't need to know anything more than we know. Could it be that God was silent somehow in the scriptures about our responsibility for them? No, the mandate is there. Let the children come. Train up a child the way you should go. Don't cause one of these little ones to stumble. Could it be that God's view of children is kind of vague in scriptures? Nope. As I go through my scriptures, I find that almost any time something really important is going on, God is looking for a child. He's like saying, this is really big. 
So I need someone really small to make this happen. So he chose someone small to kill a giant. He chose someone small to speak truth to Eli, the high priest. He let someone small, 12 years old, teach in the temple. He let a little boy give his five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and fed everybody. He did it for that little boy, and we don't even know his name. Miracles, these little children. The problem with us grown-ups is we think too much, or, or we know too much. Probably the biggest problem is we think we know too much, <laughs> and God inevitably reaches out to little ones. The Scriptures are abundantly, abundantly clear. So how did we miss them? How do we not understand this? Maybe they're left behind because they're easy to leave behind. You recognize that they are powerless. Uh, they lack resources. Uh, they have no voice, no political understanding, unorganized. I mean, really, look at their bedrooms. You know they're unorganized. <laughs> Every segment of society has learned how to protest and fight for their own rights, except the least of these among us. You ever see a children's protest? Nah. Neither have I. But if they could speak, they would have a lot to say about this world and what's going on in it because everything that goes wrong in society, they ultimately pay the greatest price. It all spirals downward on the youngest, most vulnerable. True, whether it's famine or disease or natural disasters, our greatest sins of commission, doing the things that we know we shouldn't do, children pay the greatest price for that. Wars, more children killed in wars than soldiers lately. Prostitution at its worst is child prostitution, same as pornography. There are 27 million slaves in our world today, more than at the time of Wilberforce, and it's an uglier slavery than ever. It used to be the slave's value was how big is he, how strong is he, how hard can he work. Now these slaves are in the sex trafficking business, and the question of is, is, is how young is she, how vulnerable is she, what can we get away with with her? Heaven does not burn hot enough for the slavery in our world today. But it's also true of the sins of omission, not doing the things that we know we should do. Our unhappy homes, the divorce that eventually comes, the missed hugs, the priorities that are beyond our children, not encouraging them, not praying with them. They ultimately blame themselves for everything that goes wrong. And the worst omission of all is knowing about all this evil going on in the world and doing nothing. Edmund Burke said, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And Albert Einstein said, the world is a dangerous place to live, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who don't do anything about it. So after 45 years of fighting on behalf of little children, uh, why are they such a low priority? Abundant life, I, I have come to this conclusion. They are a low priority because the government doesn't care and many of our churches and missions don't get it, but there are two forces in our world that do care, that do understand it, and we know about both of them. It is the forces of hell and the forces of heaven. There's a battle fought over each and every little child. Satan watches them being knit in their mama's womb and waits for the moment to, for their birth to attack, and he attacks young. The younger, the better. The weaker, the better. He uses one of two tools, by the way. He loves to use poverty to separate them from God, and he loves to use comfort to separate them from God. And he attacks early. And it's a lifelong 
attack. The worst thing about poverty is not water, sanitation, housing. Those are symptoms of poverty. The worst thing about poverty is the message that gets into a little child's heart in that environment that says, give up. Nobody cares. Nothing's ever going to change for you. Nobody's coming on a white horse to rescue you. This is why the power of the gospel is so strong. This is why compression only touches the life of a child through a local church. Because the gospel is the antithesis to the message of poverty. It says, yes, you do matter. God knows your name. God knows the pattern of your fingerprints. God knows how many hairs on your head. God has a wonderful plan and a future for you. He would have died on the cross if you were the only child on earth. And when a child understands that, the path out of poverty is there. This is why the church is so important, the gospel is so important, and why you as followers of Christ, sponsors are so important. When you share in your letters with your child your love for the Lord, your favorite verse, the fact that you're praying for them, you are discipling them along with that little local church that you saw. So people will often say, well, nobody cares what you know until they know why you care. So let me pause a moment and tell you why exactly am I in this battle and why do I care so much? Proverbs 31a says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And that's why I wrote the book, Too Small to Ignore, in just a minute. And my battle for children began a long, long time ago. I'm pretty sure as I was being knit in my mama's womb, there were all kinds of advisor angels gathered around and saying, well, let's do this, let's try this, how about this, how about this? Then I'm finally born, they gather around and they say, well, he's cute as a button, isn't he? But he's not a rocket scientist. We're going to have to make it really clear what he's to do with his life. And so I was born into the family of Ken and Marge Stafford from Denver, Colorado. And they, of all places, were called to the mission field. As high school sweethearts, they used to listen to missionary speakers nudge each other and say, Lord, please, don't call us to be missionaries. And if you do, please, not Africa. Uh, be careful what you pray for. We got both. And uh, there, there it was on the Sahara Desert of West Africa, the hottest, nastiest place you ever saw. I was a typical missionary kid, ran around barefoot most of the time, slingshot around my neck, deadly accurate with that thing. Uh, I spoke four languages every day, but none of them really very well. Uh, I was sick much of my childhood. Malaria nearly killed me. The closest I nearly came to death at about age nine was ants. Army ants attacked our house in the dead of the night. I was covered by thousands, hundreds of these guys. They all bit, injected poison. I nearly died. The whole village surrounded our little house and prayed for the little white guy. If you don't have a cause, join me in this one. Step on every ant you see. <laughs> I will never get even with those rascals. I will go across the street if I think there's an ant hill over there on that sidewalk over there. My sister and I were the only white children for 100 miles in any direction, and that was how far our nearest hospital was. That's why when you got sick, it pretty much risked your life. 120 degrees was a typical day. Uh, we were way out there remote. We had no electricity, not so much as a fan, no television, no radio, no refrigerator. My mother, a city girl from Denver, used to stand at her little Tupperware basin 
and she would look out across the shimmering heat of the Sahara Desert. She would blow her hair out of her eyes. She'd say, I don't have much in the way of luxury way out here, but I have running water. Wes, take the pail, go out to the well, run back here with some water. I was the running water in our family. My father was a missionary, of course. He was a linguist. Uh, he put the Senefu language of the Ivory Coast into writing. He translated scripture. At age seven, I was teaching Africans how to read to a pumped-up Coleman lantern. Um, we planted village, uh, churches in villages where the, no white people had been since the slave traders. They had a saying in my little village, it takes the whole village to raise a child. And this was not a plaque on the wall. This is how they lived. Every child belonged to every grown-up. And I, was, uh, I got in on that package deal, even though I was the wrong color skin. I never fell down in that village without some African woman swooping in, picking me up, drying the tears from my eyes. I didn't get away with a whole lot of no-nos in that village because I kind of stood out. I remember the chief one night as we were all gathered around the evening campfire, he said, uh, the ghosts are looking a little skinny this year and we're not in a drought, and I think I know what's going on. The little boys are chasing them all around the village, and in the swirling red dust, I can't see who all they are, but I do know this, that little white boy right there, he's one of them. <laughs> and I used to pray every night, Lord, I know you can do this. You parted the Red Sea, you brought down the walls of Jericho. In the morning when I wake up, please let my skin be black like all of my friends. It'd be the first thing I would check in the morning. And I'd be like, still white, but, but maybe tomorrow. They loved on me. They taught me what they taught their children. Uh, I learned how to hunt. We were very close to nature. Pastor Phil knows I learned how to fish. I learned how to farm. By the time I was 15 years old and came to America, uh, I was a fully trained peasant farmer. Could have raised a family on the Sahara Desert. All of my values that make up who I am, I learn from the poor. I do not subtly look down to the poor. I look up, and I think we need to earn the right to even be around them. But they taught me about love and joy and hope and time as your servant, not your master, I say as the clock ticks down. Uh, gratitude, strength, generosity, courage. Everything I needed to know to lead Compassion's worldwide ministry, I actually learned in that village among the poor. But we were poor and we were vulnerable. We were survivalist agricultural hunters and fishermen. Everything had to go right. The rains had to fall. The seeds had to germinate. I remember once a plague of locusts came in off of the Sahara Desert. The sky was black. It must have been like Egypt's plague. And we ran out there and we tried to beat them away as they landed down at harvest time. We were going to harvest that next week. They were on the ground for two hours, and when they flew off, they took everything you could eat. And for the next year, all we ate in my village was termites. They taste better than you would think. <laughs> Raw, they taste like peppermint, and if you roast them over a little fire on a, on a wire, eh, they taste like popcorn. <laughs> but we starved that year, and the next year, an epidemic of measles swept through. Measles should keep you out of school for a couple of days, maybe. But because we were so weak already, it was a killer. And as a little guy, um, in a span of two weeks, one out of every four of my friends died 
of measles. And I remember running to my father with a broken heart. Many of my friends died right in my arms. And I remember he looked up from this row of Bibles where he was translating scripture. And he says, what is it, son? And I said, daddy, I got a question for you. When do you think it'll be my turn? And he said, your turn for what, Wes? And I said, my turn to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying. I'm afraid I'm going to die soon. Uh, when do you think it'll be? And I'll never forget, he said, son, you don't have to worry about this. And I said, how do you know, Papa? And he said, roll up your T-shirt. And I did. He said, those little scratches on your arm, those are called vaccinations. You got those in America before you came here, so you wouldn't get diseases like this. And guys, I became Compassion's president as a little boy in that moment because I'll never forget my father's face blurred into my tears. And I stammered, Papa, that's not fair. Why do I have scratches on my arm? Why don't all the children have scratches on their arms? It was a moment that changed my entire life. By the time I was 15 and came to America finally to live, half of all my little childhood friends had died. And we buried them the same day they died. We had no choice. Uh, we would gather as a village and we would celebrate their lives, what they had hoped to become. I would lie in my little cot listening to the stories of my little buddies and just crying myself to sleep. I would lie on my back in the hot tropical night and my eyes would well with tears and then it would spill and my ears would well with tears. It would spill onto my pillow and a few days later, it would be another one of my friends. And I thought that's just how the world is. The little ones die. And then at age 15, I come to America, and the first place I see in America after this little desert village is Manhattan. You talk about culture shock. My first day in Manhattan, I see people walking along with paper bags, and I look inside. It's food. So being a pretty darn good hunter, you gunners know how this is. I backtracked them. Where's that coming from? And I came to my first grocery store. All of this food, and it hit me. There's plenty of food. And next door was a drugstore. And I went in there in my broken English. I said, what's all this? And they said, well, it's, it's, all, it's all medicine. I said, you have vaccination? And they said, oh, yeah, we don't sell it to little guys like you. Uh, but we sell it. We got it in the freezers in the back. We sell it to clinics and doctors. And I realized, you know what, there's plenty of food and there is plenty of medicine in this world. And I went out front with this epiphany and I sat on the curb in New York City and I just sobbed and sobbed, this little 15-year-old, skinny as a rail, brokenhearted that none of that needed to happen. It was New York, so nobody stopped to see if I was okay. After a while, I actually ran out of tears. And I began watching people walking by in these fancy shoes, these fancy purses, these fancy watches. And I was like, what is wrong with you people? You have all of this and you don't care. And after I had lived in America for eight years through high school and on into college, I realized how wrong I was. The issue wasn't they didn't care. The issue was they didn't know. And it turns out when they know, they really, really care. Americans are probably the most generous people in all of the world. And it came to me, somehow my life has got to be a bridge across these two worlds. I know the children in poverty. I know their families. I know their little churches. And now I know these precious people. And they may have some money in their pocket, but they need what these people have. They need love, and they need hope, and they need joy. And I realized somehow I've got to bridge these two worlds. And I was discouraged because I thought, ugh, that means I've got to work for the United Nations or I've got to go be an ambassador or something. About that time, I stumbled into a little storefront in Chicago, and it says Compassion International over the door. It was about the size of a 7-Eleven. 
And I walked inside and I said, what do you guys do? And they said, well, our enemy is poverty. And I'm like, that sounds familiar. Me, me and poverty, it's like two little boys fighting on the playground. And the teacher jumps in and says, hey, hey, who started this? I could honestly say, he did. He broke my heart when I was small. And all I'm doing is fighting back with the rest of my life. And I said, what do you do about poverty? And they said, well, we help little children and their family in little churches around the world, like Peru. And we link them up with people on this side who can help. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't have to start anything at all. It already exists. All I have to do is throw my hat in the ring. And that's what I did 45 years ago. I threw my hat in that ring, and I have fought all these years without ever looking back. 45 years. Today, It was 25,000, as Phil said. Today, it's 2.2 million sponsored children. They are being helped by 8,000 churches in 25 countries. Actually, I stand corrected today. It's 8,001 churches because there's a little jungle church in Peru that you guys are building, that you guys are going to sponsor their children. I'm so proud of you today. I praise God that he will do this for us. Good news as a son of missionaries, I can absolutely guarantee you today, out of the 2.2 million children in Compassion's program, 500 of them are going to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior today. Every day, 500 do. If you want to picture that, look around this sanctuary. It would take less than now and next Sunday when you come back together to worship again, to fill every seat in this auditorium with a child who has given their life to Christ this week in the ministry of compassion. Some of them might be your own sponsored children. Now the job is to disciple them to reach their full God-given potential. So my prayer for you, now that you know who I am. Now you know what I fight for, what I believe in. My prayer for you is that you too will join me in this battle for children. That you will throw yourself into the cause of blessing the lives of children, rescuing the lives of children around the world. And that in the midst of writing to your sponsored child, in the midst of that prayer for your child, in the midst of that meal being served for your child, in the midst of that letter where you're writing a child saying, I know God loves you, and so do I. Sweetheart, don't give up. God knows everything about you. This is my favorite Bible verse. I look forward to the day in heaven when we can be together. And I hope that in the midst of doing that remarkable act, you'll look up suddenly. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will hear a trumpet blast. And you will look up and the sky will roll back like a scroll. And we will go home, finally, finally home, where there's no more sickness, where there's no more sorrow, where there's no more hunger, where there's no more pain. In fact, there's no more tears. Revelation 21.4, God says, I, I will wipe away all tears from their eyes. Can you imagine what that means? That means the hands that knit you in your mama's womb 
are waiting to comfort you, waiting to wipe the tears from your eyes in the midst of losses. That means the hands that picked you up when you fell down so discouraged, you didn't think you could go on another step. Those hands that picked you up are waiting to welcome you into heaven and to wipe the tears from your eyes. It means that the hands that spread on that cross and took the nails to redeem you are waiting to welcome you into heaven and to wipe the tears from your eyes. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to run into the arms of my Lord, my Savior, my King, my Redeemer. And I intend to run into those arms and I can't wait for him to wipe the tears from my eyes. Way too many tears for one lifetime. But my prayer for you is the same as that prayer for me. I pray that as he wipes the tears from my eyes, he takes a look and realizes, I also need to wipe the sweat from the brow of this guy. Because I lived the life that he called me to live. I comforted the poor. I spoke up for those who couldn't speak for themselves. I was kind to the least of these, and so were you, until we were suddenly and wonderfully interrupted by heaven. Oh, abundant life, may it be so for me. May it be so for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We're in the town of Sase. It's about 30 miles from our other compassion center, which is in Shapaha. And right behind me is the land that you're helping build the next compassion center as well as church plant that's going to reach hundreds and hundreds of families from this very area and this very spot. So, church, I want you to meet Mary Bell, who donated this land right behind me to put our next church plant and compassion center right here. In this part of Peru, this town of Salce. And the pastor that's going to pastor this church, I want you to meet him right now, Miramano. Uh, he's going to pastor the church that's here. And uh, we're just so excited to get to partner with these amazing, beautiful saints of God right here in Peru. So there are at least 300 children in this one area. That have been registered with Compassion. Que ya están registrados en Compassion for sponsorship. Para el patrocinio. This Sunday at our church. I'm going to talk about what we've seen here. The amazing brothers and sisters that are here already. That are planting a church here. And a compassion center. And our church is going to sponsor all 300 children. Thank you for letting us partner with you. For the gospel. For the glory of God. And we're praying. 
that in the years ahead, thousands of people will find Jesus. Amen. Right here. Amen. So here we go, church. We're going to do it again. There's going to be a compassion center and church plant right there on that piece of ground, our second one. And we're going to today sponsor not 300, but 500 children. And this is where you come in. So your next step from here is to at least pray. And then sponsor one of these children. Some of you don't need to pray. You just need to go do it. So here's what you do. Before you leave, whether you're on an on-site campus or online, there's somewhere for you to go. So if you're on-site, Lee Summit, Independence, Blue Springs, right there in the foyer, as you're walking out, stop by the Compassion desk right there. Pick up a packet. You can register right now, right there to be a sponsor. Uh, my dad was sponsoring a, a compassion child. And Chris and I are going to pick up his child because he's now in heaven. And maybe you want to pick up a second child. There's 500 children this year in Peru. We're going to lift out of poverty. We're going to introduce them to Jesus. We're going to disciple them all the way through birth to graduation to know and love Jesus, become all that God meant for them to be. And I want to say one other thing. Listen, I know we all have limited resources. You have kingdom dollars, but you don't have unlimited dollars. You have to prayerfully consider, where am I going to invest my kingdom dollars? And we're doing a lot as a church right here to reach our city. Everybody knows we're going to Crossroads. We're renovating a 1940s warehouse into a church house, and that's taking lots and lots of money, but this is what I want you to hear me say. If you think you cannot do this and this, like, I want a compassion child, but I'm giving right now this to Abundant Life, I want you to know from your pastor that if you have to make a choice, take $38 a month from what you'd normally give Abundant Life to our ministry and send it to Compassion instead to sponsor one of these children. But you pray about what to do and then do whatever God calls you to do. Here's the deal. First service, 136 children already sponsored of the 500. So whatever you do, do quickly. You're in the second service. I don't know. There may not be any children left for the third service. Wouldn't that be too bad? I bet we find some more. I bet we do. There's millions out there. Do for some what you wish you could do for everyone. Church, I want to pray right now. Jesus, thank you for the chance to give our life to the things that really matter, the things that last forever. Thank you, Lord, for a kingdom-minded church with so many kingdom followers that want to advance your wonderful name, your fame, from the neighborhood to the nations. Help us, I pray, in Peru to make a forever change on thousands of lives from right here as we partner with our brothers and sisters that are there. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Give Jesus the glory today, would you? I love you all so much. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.